We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, as I mentioned, beginning of the service, we're kind of walking through uh, what does it mean to live a God-lived life and a little bit of refreshing from last week. Um, um, the ability, the desire to live a God-lived life comes from knowing that God lived his life for us in Christ. And today, that's what we want to look at. Um, a God-lived life loves neighbors, right? Um, but we want to dig down a little bit, where's the motivation to do that very thing? Uh, there's a story that I heard, and maybe some of you have heard it in the past. Um, it's a story about an older man um, who would, once a week, would, would be seen walking um, the Florida coastline. And he would walk that coast or walk that beach, and he always had a big bucket with him. And in the bucket, uh, it was filled with shrimp. Okay? Now, if you have ever walked on a beach with any amount of food, guess who shows up rather quickly? Seagulls. Okay, yeah, so they're all over you. So um, last time... Um, and when I, my kids were little, when we'd go to the beach, I'd be like, like my only rule was like, put the food away. Like my entire job as a dad was like, because the seagulls are going to come. The seagulls are going to come, right? I was just freaking out about seagulls, right? Well, this guy um, walks along that coast, right? And intentionally he has a huge bucket of shrimp. So lo and behold, what happens uh, that we would assume, there were just seagulls all over him right? Just swarming around him. Uh, I can only envision that they, they, were, they were pooping on him. They were doing it, whatever, right? This, well, this is, what, this is why I was worried as a dad. I don't want anyone to get pooped on. I'm like, okay. Could be worse things, right? There could be worse things, right? But um, he walks along and intentionally, so he's feeding these seagulls and feeding these seagulls. And uh, as the story goes, they, they said if he was there every single week and if you listened, and if you heard him speaking, he would simply be saying, thank you, thank you, okay? Now, why would someone do that? Why, in this case, did that old-timer do that once a week? In other words, thank you, thank you, right? There's more to that story, which some of you have maybe heard this before, um, but that was Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. So, Eddie Rickenbacker um, was one of our World War I pilot aces. Eddie Rickenbacker um, was uh, um, superior in the air. I think 26 kills during World War I. He was considered one of the best pilot aces that the United States had ever produced. That's who walked that beach on a regular basis with a bucket full of shrimp saying, thank you, thank you. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. The reason he was doing it? Uh, in October of 1942, uh, Eddie Rickenbacker um, was, was sent to General MacArthur in New Guinea. Um, and he was going to meet him and he was to bring him a, a secret message. And so he and his crew went up. I think it was a B-17 flying fortress. Uh, they were going to New Guinea. They were going to deliver this message. But along the way, their navigational... Um, um, their navigation stuff kind of got all messed up. They got off course. They didn't know where they were at, eventually ran out of gas, um, and they had to ditch the B-17 in the water, and all of the men on board had to exit. So now here they are, middle of the Pacific, 
right? Uh, limited amount of rations and food that they have. They're in their raft, shark-infested waters, right? So they're doing anything that they can to survive. But the problem was they were way off course and they knew it. So help was not coming quickly and it was not going to come soon. Uh, these men, on some level, probably assumed they weren't going to make it out of this, right? This is where they would die, in the middle of the Pacific, starving and dying of dehydration. And so they did the best they could. They rationed, uh, they cut things down, they, they, they did everything they could to fend off the sharks, um, but it got to a point where there was nothing left. There was nothing else that they could do. And in fact, uh, um, um, most of them kind of resigned themselves to the fact that they would die in the waters of the Pacific. Eddie Rickenbacker in his biography said this, he said, Captain William Cherry read the service that afternoon and we finished with a prayer for deliverance and a hymn of praise. There was some talk, but it tapered off in the oppressive heat. With my hat pulled down over my eyes to keep out some of the glare, I dozed off. Something landed on my head. I knew that it was a seagull. I don't know how I knew, I just knew. Everyone else knew too. No one said a word, but peering out from under my hat brim without moving my head, I could see the expression on their faces. They were staring at that goal. The goal meant food if I could catch it. And he did. They caught the goal. It fed all of the men who were at sea for almost a month. They were rescued. They all survived. So why was Captain Eddie Rickenbacker feeding shrimp to seagulls on the beach and saying thank you? That's why. Because he and his men were in need of a miracle. They had nowhere else to turn. There was nothing else they could do. And the seagull showed up and literally saved them. His reaction? Feed shrimp to the seagulls on the beach, right? As a way to say thank you. I think it's a poignant story, but it also directs our minds and our thoughts to what we're talking about today. Our motivation to live a God-lived life, right? We can see some similarities. We were in need. We were lost. We needed a miracle, and we had it. We have it in Christ. That motivates for us to even talk about the concept of a God-lived life. So that's what we want to look at here today. Um, where does that thankfulness lead us and who does it lead us to? Okay. Um, oh, I forgot this part. After Eddie Rickenbacker and his, his men were in the ocean, every uh, emergency, this is what I've been told, every emergency kit that you have now also has a fishing line and stuff because they used some of the seagull to catch fish and sustain themselves as they went along. Right? So, Okay. So uh, let's jump into our text this morning. These are kind of the two points. If you are a studious type, uh, you used to give your teachers apples, um, kiss up to them a little bit, and you want to fill in blanks, you get to, right? So I shouldn't say it like that, right? So yeah. Uh, these are going to be the kind of the two points we go through. So the theme is um, a God-lived life loves neighbors, um, and we'll talk about the implications of that in kind of two different ways. So uh, let's jump into our text then this morning. I'm going to begin by reading, uh, starting at verse 25. You're welcome to follow along in your bulletin or on our screen here. It says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, if there was ever a student who was going to give their teacher an apple, I think it would have been this guy. Right? And actually, Jesus responds. He asks them, uh, how do you read it? Right? You're an expert in the law. Um, how do you interpret God's law and where it, it focuses our minds and our hearts? And by Jesus' own account, he gives an incredible answer. Jesus says, yep, you got it. Right? You answered correctly. But it's interesting because it wasn't enough for this man. And I highlighted a couple things. Uh, number one, that expert in the law um, prided himself on no knowing every last sentence and detail of God's law of the Old Testament at that time, right? That was his job, was to know the Old Testament. So when Jesus asks him, how do you interpret it? Um, he's probably thinking, yes, this is right up my alley, right? This is, this is what I know, right? He asks him, what must I do? That's kind of where we already see him going off course. Right? What must I do to accomplish what God has put on the pages of Scripture and in the law? Jesus says, your answer is right. Just go ahead and go do that. But what's fascinating is look how he responds. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. That word justify means to declare not guilty. He wanted to declare himself not guilty based on how he had accomplished and followed every last law that God had given them in the Old Testament. Jesus not only knows his words, but knows his heart and doesn't actually let him off the hook. And truth is, we know why, don't we? Right? Even from his question and his answer, we kind of get a sense of where he's going with this, where the expert in the law is going with it. The reason we know that is because there are times when we do the very same thing, okay? This was a headline that ran in a newspaper. Okay, if you're looking closely, Mississippi's literacy program shows improvement, okay? I know, I know, yeah. So if M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, -I, I went to school in the Midwest, so you learn a little bit, right? So, okay, yeah, so it's misspelled, right? Okay, so, um, and now here's a couple things that are going on with this, and, and here's where I think our text and even this are going to force us to drill deeper and to really inspect our own hearts and our own motivations in this regard, Right? Our initial reaction is, is that it's funny, right? We, we giggle at it. But the truth is, there's a lot more to that. Uh, number one, it's actually not true. You ever use Snopes? You look it up, this is actually a fake headline, okay? So we live in a world where we literally have to try to verify and check everything that we see. That even things like this, we can't take at face value, okay? So that's one layer deeper. So actually, this isn't uh, a headline that actually ran in a newspaper. It's fake, okay? So now your minds are already running to the next level of things, right? You say, oh yeah, 
it's funny, right? Until you understand that the state of Mississippi actually has kind of horrendous literacy rates, which, to be honest, isn't actually that funny, right? Because it affects lives, lifestyle, all those types of things, okay? So now we got a headline that was a joke, but it wasn't real, but it underlines the reality of Mississippi. Maybe we can go even a step further um, and maybe think, oh, well, who actually wrote this one? I don't know. My money's on like Alabama or some neighboring state, right? Yeah, so right? My brother lives in Alabama, so I can, right? But, but even from this, my whole point of this is that we see the headlight and it's funny. The next level is it's actually not true, it's a lie. The next level of that is it's not funny to not have high literacy rates. And the next level is it very well could have been produced by a neighboring state that just had jealousy over Mississippi or wanted to put them down. And so now we've maybe taken this joke and we've deconstructed it a little bit. But the truth is you've, you do that all the time. We do that all the time. When we did the children's lesson and I asked them, when someone is hurt, what can or should you do? They answered, you help. That should be remarkably straightforward and clear. And you want to know why it's so straightforward and clear to these little kids? Because they are not playing semantic games. Because, and, and lest we look down on them, because they are not playing these word games. Because they are not saying, yeah, what about, how about this, how about that? All they know is, if someone's hurt, you help them. Now, put that in our lives. It's not so simple. And to be honest, we don't make it so simple. I think it could be, but it's often not. Because we play semantic games, don't we? We fool around with definitions, with words, and intent. You talk about that expert in the law. That's a little bit of what he was want, trying to do. When he asked Jesus to define who is my neighbor, we all know very well what he is trying to do. We are not so deluded to think he actually wants a definition. The only thing he wants is Jesus to put down on paper a definition so that he can frame himself in the best possible light. So that he can frame himself this way and potentially exclude the ones he doesn't like or are inconvenient to him. So, we, we know exactly what the expert in the law is doing. He's playing semantic games. Um, he, he's trying to get Jesus to say the letter of the law and ignore the intent of the law. The reason we know that is because we're not children. But here's probably the sadder part. The reason we know that is because we do it. We do. We play semantic games, right? We play games with words we change definitions to suit our own uh, desires and our own positions. We do this all the time. I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, and and um, each of these, we're going to kind of see how those play out. But first is politics. You want to know who plays semantic games? Generally, politicians do, right? Right? They do, right? Uh, um, that the words they purposefully choose to use or not use, have an impact. It says something or doesn't say something, or it moves you towards a position that they want you to move towards. Say, okay, 
Um, we kind of know politicians play fast and loose with words, but I've got an example for you, right? Um, if we use the words asylum-seeking versus illegal immigrant, are we talking about the same physical people? Okay. You just cut through it. But clearly, both of those words or the, those terminologies are meant to convey something slightly different. Okay? This isn't by accident. This is intentional, right? On all sides, right? Playing semantic games for your own benefit, right? And for your own motivations. Okay? Politicians do it all the time. Second place it happens in relationships. I don't want to pick on husbands and wives because I know it's, uh, it's getting close to Valentine's Day. <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, this happens in all relationships, um, but maybe most intently and devastatingly uh, within marriages, right? Where we use words to intentionally hurt the other and to paint ourselves in the best possible light. Of couples that'll come to me, um, usually one-on-one, -on -one, right, um, and ask for some counseling. And the first thing I do, whether it's the woman or the man, I, we sit down, I say, well, why don't you tell me what's going on, right? I just listen. You tell me what's going on. Um, and they will paint the entire picture of what's happened. Every single time, in every single marriage counseling situation, those pictures are painted significantly different. To the point where you're like, are you sure you two are even married to each other? Or we're in the same room? <laughs> now, I've, on some level, sadly come to expect it. And so I will listen, and I will listen, and then you want to know what I tell them? Now we're going to sit down. And you're going to be able to say the very same things in front of your spouse with a third party sitting there simply listening it becomes remarkably hard for them to say it in the same way, with the same tone, right, and in the same light. How come? Because that person's sitting right next to them. These are semantic games, right? We're playing with definitions, always painting ourselves in the best light versus the worst light. Uh, politicians do it, couples do it, and I've got one more category. You do it, and I do it. We do it in our hearts and we do it in our own heads. Over and over and over again, we try to justify ourselves, our sinful actions, why we're justified in reacting the way that we did, why we are in the right and the other is in the wrong. And so, lest we pick on politicians or marriages, the truth is this is coming from us, our own hearts that choose to delude ourselves and play semantic games even within our own hearts and minds. And so maybe the expert in the law shouldn't really surprise us of what he's trying to do for Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus just doesn't buy it. He's like, sure. You want to play word games? You can. I can play word games. Um, and this is actually pretty consistent with Jesus throughout the New Testament. Anytime a trap is set for him, do you want to know what he does? He just walks straight through it. <laughs> he does it with the expert in the law as well. So the expert in the law is playing semantic games. He wants to paint himself in a good light, the best light, right? He wants to create the boxes and make sure that he's in it and others are on 
the outside of it, right? But you want to know what's really hard, what is hard to stand up against is exactly what Jesus did. He simply tells a story. It's fascinating because he doesn't choose to argue the points of the text or what was written on paper with the expert in the law. Jesus immediately says, let me tell you a story. I don't think that's by accident. I think it's intentional. Because what Christ was doing was saying, let's not only talk about the letter of the law, let's talk about the intent. And I'm going to give you a story, and you tell me the meaning of this story. It's actually identical to the answer that the expert in the law gave. But Jesus says, now I'm going to put it in real terms with real people in a real situation, and you tell me what's going on here. In some sense, he's challenging the expert in the law. Okay? So our first point, which is kind of where the expert in the law takes us, is this right here. A God-lived life, we love neighbors, but we also are willing to see through the semantics. The semantics, the word games, the manipulation around us, but also those same things in our own hearts, right? And in our own lives, okay? Jesus goes on, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so Jesus' story, he's making it real, he's making it uh, um, human, right? A priest and a Levi, Levite, rather. Remember, the expert in the law is the one that's being challenged here. So we've got almost all the classes of the religious elite at this time, right? So um, the priest um, would have worked in the temple for worship, and so would have the Levite. They come down, they see that the man is hurt, clearly in need, um, and not only do they not help, but they pass by on the other side. Now, we're presuming this is actually one of their fellow countrymen, right? A fellow Israelite, a fellow Jew that was in need. Simply go by on the other side. And maybe we can think of reasons why they would have done that, right? Uh, these are these word games that we play in our own minds um, because we've done it at times. Because they were in a hurry. Someone, they, had, they had an appointment that was coming up. Someone was relying on them. They had to get to that appointment. <clears throat> There's no way they could take time out of their day to help somebody that was hurt, okay? Too busy, <laughs> Right? I don't have time for this man. Priest maybe even could have said, if, if I help him and if I come into contact with blood and Lord forbid he actually dies, <clears throat> it will make me ceremonially unclean. I won't be able to perform my duties as a priest on behalf half of God's people in Israel. It'll take me out of commission and that's going to hurt a lot more people. See, I think as these men walk by, my guess is they were playing these semantic games in their own head. And they found plenty of reasons why they should not stop, they could not stop, and they weren't going to help. And they passed by on the other side. 
I think we can empathize, right? I think we can understand because um, the, the motivation to take time out of our day to sacrifice on behalf of somebody else, every single time you will have a million reasons why it is inconvenient and maybe even impossible. Right? I would argue these men had the same reasons running through their heads. But then the story turns. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, <clears throat> as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Contrast to the priest and the Levite is a Samaritan. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why um, this would have got the expert in the law's uh, attention. Okay? Um, Jesus purposely created a parable and a story where the hero of that parable was not a Jew and was not an Israelite. It was a Samaritan. The Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds, mixed religiously, mixed ethnically, and absolutely looked down on them. But who is the one that stops to help the Jewish man? It's the Samaritan. That wasn't by accident, right? Jesus said, in this story, this is the one that had pity, that cared, that took time. And we actually notice uh, um, the extent to which he was willing to help and to sacrifice. He lost his day, maybe two days, so he lost what is most precious to us, our time, right? He gave finances, right? So he paid for this. Uh, he brought him to the inn. He paid two denarii and actually left his credit card on the counter, right? Would you leave your credit card on the counter with an innkeeper? I don't know if I would. I barely want to leave it with like my own kids, right? Okay, he did. He said, any expense, whatever it is, when I come back, I'll square up with you, right? But he even physically helped him. He came into contact with him. He, he bandaged his wounds. He put oil and wine. Like he, he took care of him. So lest we, we sanitize this account so much, he was probably covered in blood, the man's blood. The man was crying, weeping, in pain. Like this was not a good scene that he had come upon. And yet, he jumps into it. Okay? Jesus' point for the expert in the law was that when we see someone in need, we help. In what maybe is a simplistic answer, that's what Jesus was trying to get across. But here's the amazing thing. The man in the ditch, wounded, broken, bleeding, desperate, it was you and I. That's the point of the Good Samaritan, right? The broken, bleeding, desperate, in need of a miracle person in the ditch is you and I. And who is our Good Samaritan? Jesus is our Lord and Savior, right? Because he sees us in our word games and manipulation, in our brokenness, in our evil hearts, in our evil thoughts, all the mess that we are in that ditch, Jesus said, I'll, I'll come for you, right? 
Jesus says, I'll fix you. He did that by laying down his life on the cross. So the whole point for the expert in the law and for us here today um, is not necessarily go be a good Samaritan, although we're going to talk about that in a minute, but it's that you have a good Samaritan. His name was Christ. He has healed you, washed sins clean. And yes, he sees through our word games and our manipulations. He knows you exactly who you are and yet was still willing to die on the cross for you. He knows all your dark, deep secrets, all of your skeletons. All, he sees through all of your word games and manipulation and he still was willing to die on the cross for you. We know that because he willingly did it. Scripture tells us the same. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for the many, which is us. What motivates us? We love because he first loved us. Did the expert in the law come to understand that? What's kind of interesting about this parable is we don't know. <laughs> Jesus just says, go and do likewise. How did it affect him? Did it cut through the cynicism? Did it cut through his word games? Did it cut him to the heart where he saw that he could not earn his way into heaven, that he needed a good Samaritan to lay down his life for him? We're not sure, but it has cut through us. And what we find is Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And what you find each and every time is pure, free forgiveness in Christ. That is what motivates us when we talk about a God-lived life that loves people. We only can do that. In fact, we only will want to do that when we know how we've been loved, how you've been loved by Christ himself. Our second point is this. When we know how we've been loved, we look to love sacrificially. And so it's not hard, I think, for us to look around and see the pain and the brokenness around us. In fact, we have it in our own lives and in our own hearts. The hard part is probably actually stepping up and actually doing something, right? And I think we feel the reservation and the pain that the priest and the Levite may have had. Lots of reasons not to help, but we have one powerful reason to help because of how we've been helped because of Christ as our Lord and Savior that's what motivates us that's what moves us right? the sacrificial living and loving have an impact on the world around us absolutely it does remember Eddie Reckenbacher um, I didn't tell you more about him, but he's probably one of the most decorated soldiers that our nation has ever had. Uh, I mentioned he had 26 kills. Um, he also received the Medal of Honor, so he's a Medal of Honor winner, right? Um, and, and lest we think that we've accomplished so many things in our lives, um, this guy was like, he's, he had done so much. He was an expert race car driver. He raced in the very first Indianapolis 500. This was before he went to war in World War I, by the way. So yeah, he's an ace pilot, and he also drives cars really, really fast. So he raced in the very first Indianapolis 500. Later on, guess what he did? He bought the Indy 500. Yeah, he actually owned it for a while, right, and ran it, okay? So he did those things. He was an ace pilot. He was in two 
world wars, right? Um, Indy 500, you want to know how much he bought that for? 700,000 actually. Yeah, but I would guess that it's worth a little bit more than that right now. So, yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, he was also the, a, a published author. He was also the author of a comic strip. Okay? Now, I could go on and on and on. Um, Rickenbacker's accomplishments would be really, really long, right? But I'm not sure that any of those maybe um, um, hold weight compared to the story of simply feeding shrimp to seagulls on the seashore. Rickenbacker once said this, courage is doing what you are afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you are scared. I think there's some reality in that as we seek to love the people around us and the hurt, broken world in which we live. I think there is some fear there. But brothers and sisters, you can take courage because you're not walking a path that Christ himself has not already walked on your behalf. Right? As, he is, as he lifted us, bandaged us, and pulled us from the ditch. All of Eddie Rickenbacker's accomplishments, the one that I think is the most amazing and cuts through the noise, simply feeding shrimp to seagulls on the seashore, saying thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray that that's the same opportunities we get as we say thank you to our Lord above, um, as we have opportunities to simply share the healing that not only we have but the world has in Christ. Amen.